I guess I'll start by saying that most positions are not all that wealthy. For one thing, like we alluded to, we start late and have a negative net worth at age 30. But also, most spend a lot more than half of what they take home, right? Welcome to The Fi Show, where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show. And I could not be doing this without my co-host, Justin. What's up, man? Oh, not much. Just got back from lovely Dayton, Ohio in the dead of winter. So normally when I go on work trips, I'm trying to escape the cold from Boston, but not this time. No? What was the temperature there? Uh, It was below freezing and uh, pretty miserable. Well, I am traveling with Grant right now. We are in South Carolina and it was about 75 today. We're rocking shorts and t-shirts. So in your face, Justin. The two-man van. But enough about us. Let's talk about the star, the hero of the show today, and it is the physician on fire, Leaf. And Justin, what did you think about the episode? I thought it was a really interesting episode. Again, we just see a different path. I mean, this is somebody who has a negative net worth at 30 and doesn't even hear about financial independence until 40. But don't let me steal all this thunder. Let's bring Leaf on. Take it away, Leaf. Well, gosh, we have to go back pretty far. I know that my parents started with giving us an allowance when I was into football cards like I remember buying 1980 Topps football cards with my allowance money. So I was born in 75. So we're going back a long, long ways, what, 38 years. So I I guess I knew a little bit about the value of money even as a uh, kindergartner. Yeah, I didn't really start making money until 25 years later. But yeah, I I guess that's how far back we could go. Yeah, no, you know, dive back as far as you can. So I'm curious. So you're going through high school, you're going through middle school. Did you always know that you wanted to go the physician route? It was in the back of my mind growing up, definitely. I had a family in healthcare. My dad and his dad were dentists, and my mom was a nurse, and her dad was a physician and surgeon. And so it it seemed to come pretty naturally. I enjoyed science. I did well in school, and I thought briefly about business, but I think that was a brief few months in high school, and then I kind of came back around to going the doctor route. I think it's interesting to hear that you wanted to follow in the footsteps of your family as far as being a physician and not just make this decision solely based on a high income. I would say so. It just seemed like the natural thing. Although you, you know, even in high school have these career fairs and you see what the average income of uh, all these different careers are. And yeah, I mean, I knew back then, you know, the average doctor makes ooh, 95,000 or something, whatever it would have been back in the uh, early 90s. But I suppose that was in the back of my mind too. Although I know my, my dad did, you know, fairly well as a dentist and that could have been another option. That's just one that I didn't choose. And so at what age did you finish residency and get your first job as a physician? So, yeah, so the the path is four years of college, four years of medical school. This is the typical path. And then four years of residency. So I finished high school at 18, college 22, residency. uh, No, sorry. (laughs) Did I skip medical school? Four years? Anyway, the whole shebang took until I was age 30, 12 years after I graduated from high school. And then I got a real job as an anesthesiologist at age 30. Okay, so at age 30, I just want to kind of talk about your financial position. And because I've heard big debates in the financial independence and like communities that you shouldn't wait that long to start making money. So I'm just wondering what your financial position was like and if you regret waiting that long to actually start getting a positive net worth. 
You know, yeah, my, my net worth was negative, maybe approaching zero because I did have some student loans, although I kept those pretty low by staying at the University of Minnesota for undergrad and medical school. That was my in-state public school. And I had a lot of scholarships. So I actually came out in the black with a little bit of a family help that was set up when my grandfather passed away as a college fund. So I, uh, yeah, I had a negative net worth at age 30, definitely. But becoming a physician is a guaranteed path to a solid six-figure income. And so, I mean, if, if you're like dead set on becoming financially independent as soon as possible, like the person I'm looking at right now, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you, you probably aren't going to want to have a negative net worth at 30, right? But that was never really my goal. My goal was to get a good job and find a career that I would enjoy and, and work it. And it wasn't until I learned about the concept of financial independence when I was pushing 40, that I actually realized this was something that I wanted to pursue. So it's obvious that you had a conscious understanding of money and, and you were smart enough for your money not to take out heaps of student loans to, to buy things you didn't need or anything like that. But you know, once you start getting serious about financial independence, that's obviously a much more aggressive mindset. So walk us through that time in between. You know, you're during your 30s, you're in between when you started working and when you discovered financial independence. What did your spending look like and what was your progress towards being able to retire? So I, I worked quite a bit. I definitely saw time was money and money was time. And, and I started out doing what's called locum tenens work, which is temporary work as a doctor. And, and you fill in for places that are short. It might be a maternity leave or they just have a position they need to fill and they haven't been able to fill it with a full-time person. And so I would get paid by the day. I would get paid by the hour overtime if I took say a full weekend of call, I'd get a flat fee plus time when I went in. So time was money and I was short on money and I had plenty of time. So I worked a lot in those years. And then it wasn't until I, you know, I realized, wow, I think we just passed a million dollars. And then I, I started getting my investing uh, strategy down a little tighter, you know, discovered Vanguard index funds and that sort of thing. As far as wanting to retire early, that was never, never really on my horizon other than maybe like in my 50s, once we have an empty nest, then maybe, yeah, maybe that'd be a good time to, to slow down. But I was saving probably on average about half of my take-home pay during those years. And it wasn't intentional. It wasn't like, I need to save this percent so that I can have that many dollars at this particular age. It was just, we spent what we felt we wanted to spend and I wanted to save the rest. And I, I guess I figured at some point I might end up with $10 million, which is this really big, huge round number. Not that I really had a need for it, but that was sort of the trajectory I was on had I worked till, let's say, age 55 or 60. And you keep throwing around we. So I'm curious, does your wife have the same or did she have the same mindset or did she have this retire early, be set for the rest of our life goal in mind? That's a great question. And even you know when I write, I kind of use I and we interchangeably. I met my wife when I was in residency. And so when we got married, we were both basically broke. And I've done the working and she's stayed home to raise the kids. But I view all the money as our money. My life as our life. Her life as our life. And so I would say she definitely has the same mindset. She's probably more frugal than I am. And maybe it's because I'm the one earning most of the money, <laughs> but uh, she's been very a very good steward of it, you know, and when she uh, you know does shop and take care of the household. And so something you touched on briefly that I kind of want to get back to, because I know a lot of you guys in the WCI network kind of advocate for these doctors. I think I've heard the term whales be thrown around. And this is what financial advisors think because they get these 
doctors with millions of dollars in net worth and they're charging percentages on their AUM assets under management and making ridiculous fees. So I kind of like if you could talk about how these whales are getting harpooned by these financial advisors and what you can do to mitigate that as the physician on fire. I guess I'll start by saying that most physicians are not all that wealthy. For one thing, like we alluded to, we start late and have a negative net worth at age 30. But also most spend a lot more than half of what they take home, right? So you do end up with a, a small percentage and that there's a there's a study that Medscape puts out that shows the average net worth by age. And you'd be surprised how many in their 60s don't even have a million dollars at this point. But to your point, there certainly are physicians who are better with their money and, and do end up with you know, multi-million dollar portfolios, usually in their 50s and 60s. And of course, if you're looking at a 1% or a 1.5% assets under management fee on, let's call it a, a $5 million portfolio, you're paying fifty dollars to $75,000 a year for someone to manage that portfolio. Now, you may not see it as a payment because you're not writing a check, right? You just have your investments with them and they take care of it. And they show you these really pretty graphs and charts once a year or twice a year. And maybe you have some more conversations. And, and I'm not saying that they don't do any work for it. But on an hourly basis, if they're making fifty dollars to $100,000 off of you, you're making a lot more money per hour than, than you are. That's for certain. Yeah, when you hear 1.5%, it could sound reasonable to some people. But hearing it broken down like that, and when you consider what that hourly pay would be, that's a really powerful thought exercise. But how are you reaching out to help others make sure they're not taken advantage of? Well, I think just by virtue of, of being a physician, a lot of other physicians feel they, they can trust me and can relate to me and what I'm doing. My readership has grown. And in the last few months, we've had about 200,000 paid views on my blog. I've also got a, a couple of Facebook groups, one specifically for physicians called Physicians on Fire. And then another I started about a week after the first one because I had to reject a lot of people that weren't physicians because I wanted that to be kind of a you know, safe place that doctors could speak amongst themselves. But for everyone that I said, I'm sorry, why don't you join my fat fire group? So that's the uh, financial independence for the uh, higher income, higher spending individuals. So there's a few avenues right there that I'm, I'm trying to reach people. And I do write about do-it-yourself investing. I write about my portfolio and how I do the backdoor Roth and how I tax loss harvest and how you know I have my drawdown strategy kind of planned out for when I retire early. So I'm trying to lead by example in those ways. And I actually do have even a list of recommended financial advisors because I realize that not everyone is going to do their own investing. But on that list, it's a short list of 10 that have been thoroughly vetted and none of them charge AUM fees. You'll be happy to know. Awesome. Yeah, sounds like you're a great resource to these types of people. So something I kind of want to step back and define at least because there's so many different definitions out there is fat fire. Yeah. And what exactly that means to you? Yeah, it's good they said to you because there are different definitions and I'm, I'm not going to pretend to be the uh, final say in any of this, but I look at it as having a six-figure annual budget or at least the ability to spend that much in retirement. So if you're using the 4% rule, that would indicate a net worth of $2.5 or more. You could also look at it as a passive income that exceeds that level of about 8000 a month to give you $100,000 a year. Now, for us, that's plenty of money. It's more than we typically spend. You know, once we factor in expensive healthcare, maybe we'll be pushing that six-figure number as a family of four in a low-cost 
living area. But six figures for an individual might be a huge, huge amount of money for a family of five in a high cost of living area. That's probably not fat at all. So I do think it, it is important to look at your own individual situation. But I guess I would say it's it's being financially independent with a budget that is above average. Let's put it that way for someone in your situation. I know I've seen some of these tangible tips you offer up for high income earners on your blog. And some of the really interesting ones to me are things like backdoor Roths and tax harvesting. For those who aren't familiar with those terms, could you break that down a little for us? Well, first, I think it's smart and important to max out every available tax advantage retirement account that you have. So that might be a 401k or a 403b, which are almost the same thing, slightly different. Some of us have 457bs on top of that. Some have cash balance plans, you know, particularly if you're in a you know, private practice or in a group partnership kind of situation. You know, there are a number of these different avenues that can be places where you can invest and have tax-free growth and potentially tax-advantaged withdrawals as well if you go the Roth option. So you max out whatever you have available to you, and, and that includes a health savings account if you have access to a high deductible health plan, and that makes sense given your family situation. And then you're kind of stuck with taxable investing, just uh, investing after-tax money in a brokerage account, and you can do different things like crowdfunded real estate and that sort of thing. But there are a few tricks, as you mentioned, that you can maybe squeeze a little more money into tax advantage space. And one of those is the backdoor Roth IRA, which now has been blessed as officially okay per Congress. So it's been an option back since about, it was uh, actually, it was in 2010 when they lifted the limit of the income limit on Roth conversions. So before 2010, if you made over a certain amount of money, and the number today is about 190,000 for a couple, 120 or 30,000 for an individual. If you make more than that, you can't contribute directly to a Roth IRA, but you can convert money to a Roth IRA regardless of your income. So the back to a Roth trick is making a non-deductible contribution to a IRA and then converting it to Roth. And you do that in two steps rather than contributing directly to a Roth IRA. So it's not a huge thing, but it does take in 2019, it'll be $6,000 a year that you would have otherwise invested in your taxable brokerage account and putting that in a Roth IRA instead. So you'll benefit from tax-free growth and tax-free withdrawals, which makes it just a little bit better than having money in a taxable account. And to go a little deeper, could you explain the difference between a backdoor Roth and a mega backdoor Roth? Yeah, so the mega backdoor Roth, that is not available to everybody. And I even checked with my employer and they, they didn't have that option for me. But it is an investing on top of the, let's see, the $19,000 that you can make as a tax deductible employee contribution to a 401k because the actual total amount of money that can be put in one per year was 55000 Now it'll be 56000 a year. And so you, if you have that option, you can make, a again, a non-deductible 401k contribution of, let's say, $38,000. It would have been if your employer wasn't kicking in any money you know, with a profit sharing or a matching program. But anyway, topping off whatever you've got in your 401k up to that fifty-five or now $56,000 level, and then converting within the plan from that non-deductible contribution, making that Roth money. So it's complicated, but I know the White Coat Investor has a good article on it. Matt Fiantist wrote one as well. 
yeah, it's just a way to take more money and protect it from taxes. Yeah, you got to do as much as you possibly can to protect your money from those taxes. Yeah, you can. <laughs> yeah, because I, I mean, I paid six-figure income tax bills most of my career. And yeah, it, there, there just isn't a whole lot of hiding it when you're a W-2 employee, you know? So how about now that you've become an entrepreneur and I kind of, before we get into the numbers and just the tax advantages and things like that, what sprung your entrepreneurial bug? You're a physician doing awesome and then you start a blog, Physician on Fire, and it's grown to be quite successful over the past few years. Thank you. And much more than I expected. I, I thought I'd give it a try. Well, let's see. I mean, I knew a blog could make money, but I did not expect mine necessarily to become one that did. But I, I just wanted to start writing. Like I thought I might enjoy writing. It's a creative outlet. It's something very different than what I do in my day job and night job and weekend job and holiday job. <laughs> I just got off of five straight days, <laughs> Wednesday to Monday, including nights. So anyway, I just wanted to find a different way to share some of the thoughts that I had. And and honestly, I thought this whole concept of financial independence was rather revolutionary. And most physicians would, just like me, have never realized they could put themselves in a position to retire at a young age. And, and it doesn't have to be retire, obviously. There's, and I know you've talked about this before, but just because you're financial independent doesn't mean you stop working, but maybe you can work in a way that is more sustainable and makes you happier, et cetera. So I just wanted to share those concepts and kind of, you know, I, I saw the white coat investor as a role model, I guess. And I, I liked what he was doing. And I wanted to add just another voice to the physician personal finance blogosphere, which at the time consisted of maybe four or five blogs. And now it's like 75 blogs three years later. It's crazy. So was it a little over like three years ago that you discovered financial dependence? I would say it was four years ago, almost exactly. Just under three years ago, January of 19, that I started blogging. So I kind of had these wheels turning and I was doing some calculations, just making sure we truly were financially independent before I was going to start this blog telling the whole world about <laughs> it. So and I made it a New Year's resolution back in 2016 to actually start writing like I had been talking about. So was it the white coat investor that started it all? And how did you even stumble onto something like that? Or was there some external catalyst that pushed you towards these resources? That's a good question. I know I found Mr. Money Mustache a, a couple months before I found the white coat investor. And that was via a market watch article that showed up on, I don't know if it was my Yahoo or whatever, something that came on the surface that I bought on Black Friday. And then like a money page, but I found him and that's how I discovered financial independence. And then I was probably looking at some more physician-specific stuff, and, and I, I'm sure it was a Google search that led me to the White Coat Investor Yeah, about four years ago. And yeah, I dove pretty deep into everything that he had written, and there was a ton of good information there. But his writing wasn't nearly as engaging as Mr. Money Mustaches. So I kind of, in my mind, I'm like, well, I want more like information like this, White Coat Investor, but more like personality like this guy <laughs> over here, Mr. Money Mustache, and kind of try to compare find them, but adding just my own experience to that voice. Okay. But so at what point you're reading all this stuff, do you think, Hey, I can do this? Cause yeah, you're talking about it. You want to put your own voice forward, but a lot of people have all these awesome ideas. You hear everybody's uncle Joe has this new invention that he wants to start, but no one ever actually acts on it. And especially when you're a full-time physician. So just where did that motivation stem from? Well, with the internet, there's just so much, here's how to do it, right? You know, I found how to blog, you know, how to start a blog and blog tips and the minimalists. I think I used there like how to start a blog guide, which is very straightforward. 
it's such a low barrier to entry, right? You need uh, maybe a couple hundred bucks that buys you a couple of years worth of domain name registration and, and blog hosting. So if I fell flat on my face and no one read a thing, it wouldn't be any worse than, you know, spending a night at a hotel and getting a dinner. <laughs> I mean, you know, the money was like nothing, right? So yeah, it's easy to start. It's not like opening your own bar or restaurant or building a hotel or, you know what I mean? Like there's very little upfront cost. So all it really costs you is some time for the most part. And as you started getting more and more involved in the financial independent space, how did your views on working change as far as, you know, the longevity is concerned? Yeah, that's, uh, that's totally true. When I first, you know, kind of talked with my wife about this, like, Hey, you know, we pretty much have enough to retire anytime. I had like a five-year plan that's like, well, okay, we're here now. In five years, we'll probably have double, right? And then that, that will be far more than we need, you know, if our lifestyle doesn't change much. And we've been happy living the way we have been for 10, 12 years together already. So, but as, like you said, the blog got to be a little more widely read and I started getting more emails and started getting more active in social media and doing all the things that you do to, to grow a blog. And you know how that works. It is time consuming and, and it's more fun to me to do this than some of the stressful things that happen at my day job. So yeah, I just approached my group, well, one of my partners first and then the group and asked if there would be any way I could have a part-time job. And there's five docs in our uh, little anesthesia group and the other four decided to work 10% more and I worked 40% less. And I did that for a full year. I have briefly gone back to full-time work just to cover a, a military obligation of one of my partners but I'll be back to part-time in 2019. And my initial, I guess my initial retirement date, I was thinking maybe was 2020, 2021, but you know, the market's been good to us. I now have this, like you said, entrepreneurial online presence. I'm making money there. I'm, I'm donating half of that money that I do bring home, but there's still enough for us to pretty much live on. And so we're, we're kind of double FI, you know, FI based on our, retirement savings. And then we're making enough money to cover our, our living expenses with my online income. So yeah, it's a very fortunate position that I do find myself in. And so the only reason that all of this is possible is because you have such a large gap between your income and your expenses. And most people don't have that. You make $50,000 a year. Most people spend $50,000 a year. You make $500,000. You find a way to spend $500,000. So I'd love if you could kind of get into the nitty gritty tactical, even like the habits that you have that have allowed you to maintain this lifestyle for so long. Well, you know what the big expenses are, right? It's it's your housing, it's your motor vehicles, it's the way you consume food. And we've lived in nice houses, but not million dollar homes. We've driven cars for, you know, eight to 10 years at a time. We started a family right after I got my first doctor job. And so, or at least within a couple of years, uh, so we're at home. You know, we, we eat at home. We, we are both pretty good in the kitchen and at the grill. And, and so, uh, you know, we, we eat out, gosh, I don't know, a couple times a month, maybe, you know, unless we're on vacation. So just living like, I don't want to say upper middle class because that sounds a little hoity-toity, but, but uh, living, you know, a, a comfortable middle class lifestyle you know, not quote unquote, keeping up with the Dr. Joneses. <laughs> yeah. The Dr. Joneses are a lot harder to keep up with than the normal ones. <laughs> they are. They're like next level Joneses. Yes, indeed. But the thing is, it doesn't sound crazy. Like all the stuff you just mentioned is not insane, not crazy at all. But 
people can't do it. I didn't track our spending until I was a blogger. Then I'm like, well, again, I need to prove that we are financially independent, both to myself and to my readers. So I tracked pretty religiously the first couple of years, and we were spending between sixty and seventy thousand dollars a year. We've got a paid-off home, so our housing costs are are pretty minimal. You know, so it's almost a, a hundred thousand dollar you know lifestyle if you, you factor in the fact that we're not paying rent or a mortgage. So we're living well. You know, we travel a lot. You know, we don't we don't scrimp. We don't cut too many corners, but we don't like to waste money either. Yeah, you know, we buy what we need, spend intentionally, live pretty well, but well within our means. Yeah, I actually wanted to discuss traveling because I know that's something y'all are really into, which can be a huge expense for people. But I also know that you've really taken on travel hacking. Yeah, that's something that this community really introduced me to. You know, I never really used points other than what I got for spending money on one card all year long. And since I have discovered the many ways in which you can benefit from both personal and business cards and the welcome bonuses, we've been doing a lot of travel for free and including the four of us going to Hawaii, the four of us going to Honduras, I went to Roatan and then did a medical mission for a week there. We've you know, gotten tons of hotel stays for free, all that. So I think we still spend a low five-figure amount on travel, but it would probably be 20000 30000 a year on travel if we weren't cutting, I shouldn't say cutting corners, but using our points and miles wisely and accumulating them regularly. One thing that really stood out to me there was that mention of a medical mission trip. And I know you donate so much money to good causes and share this message of giving. I've also seen you talk about how you're going to keep pushing that message, even though it's not necessarily what gets you a lot of traction from readers, but you do it because it's part of your belief system. I've seen through my annual mission trip down to help out with the orphanage in Mexico, like how eye-opening those experiences can be. And I think it's even more so for people in the financial space. So I just want to say kudos for pushing that message, regardless of the clicks. Yes. Well, thank you for reading that post because not many people did. You know, like the Saturday before I had a republished post from Passive Income MD about should you check your net worth? And that got like 3000 views the first day. And then I wrote about donating money. In fact, I offered to donate money. I gave $100 to 100 different charities and I asked the readers to give me their requests. And I don't even think a thousand people read it that first day, even though I was like, tell me, where do you want your money to go? I'll give it. It's not your money. It's my money. But now it's going to be whatever. Yeah, but I, I came into this from a standpoint of, hey, I've already reached financial independence. And oh, by the way, here's a sidebar with a bunch of ads. And here's my affiliate link for personal capital. And like, I, I thought it would be pretty greedy to do that without having some kind of charitable mission. So yeah, I do give half the profits, mostly via our donor advised fund, which is a neat little uh, place to park money where you can donate now and then dole it out from there over many years. And we could talk more about that if you want. But you mentioned the medical mission. And that was something I've been wanting to do for quite a long time. I just never really made it a priority. And it's, it's a little tougher when your kids are young. You're either you know, leaving the family. But I found a mission that would allow me to bring my family and let them volunteer in whatever limited capacity they could. But this particular mission is on a ranch that houses hundreds of Honduran children that are basically orphans. and are raised by the ranch that this little surgical center is located at. So my kids who were seven and nine at the time got to come along and I did you know, surgeries all day, orthopedic and pediatric general surgery cases. And my wife and kids helped out all around the compound and we're going back again next. Well, yeah, next May, maybe it'll be this May. I'm not sure when we're going to 
when you're going to release this podcast. But anyway, 2019 may will be going back for another week to NPH Honduras. But yeah, I do think that once you reach financial independence and you're young and you're still ambitious and you still have drive and you're going to end up with more money than you need. So why not use that money to to do some good? And I, I like that a, a number of other bloggers have a very similar mindset. I've got a list of, I think, 20 some that also use the uh, donor advised funds as uh, part of their giving vehicles. So the natural transition is, could you talk more about the donor advised fund? Because I actually don't know that much about it because... I don't have the highest net worth at my age yet. <laughs> yeah, and I didn't discover it until it was like 2013 that I started mine. It is a charitable organization. So Vanguard has one, Fidelity has one, Schwab has one. There are a lot of community foundations. But the entity that you're putting your money in is a charity. But it's a charity that holds onto the money in an account that you can control. And you can... After you've given the money to it, you can make grants from it at any point in the future or currently. So what I've done is I'm in my highest peak earning years. I know that I'm going to be earning less soon. So I wanted to fill up this donor advised fund with money that would be tax deductible in these high tax brackets. So a couple of years ago, I gave $100,000 to the donor advised fund. And my taxes were reduced by 40 some thousand dollars that year. And you can actually donate not only cash, but you can donate appreciated stocks and mutual funds. So I donated the mutual funds that had the most gains in them. So let's say I maybe only paid $60,000 and had $40,000 in gains in these funds that I gave. So when I donated the 100000 I get the full deduction in that year that I donated to the donor advised fund. And also that $40,000 in capital gains that I might have paid if I had sold the funds and then donated them, that would have owed capital gains tax on the $40,000, which would work out to about $12,000. Well, that disappears too. So you can make it a very tax advantage way to give. And some people think, well, that's like cheating the system. And why would you do that? Why don't you just care about the spirit of giving? It's like, well, right. But for every dollar I part with in a very tax advantage way, that's like a dollar eighty going to the charity, right? If I just gave a dollar out of my wallet, they'd get a dollar. But if I give a dollar eighty and I get an eighty cent tax deduction, well, that costs me one dollar to give a dollar and eighty cents. That's kind of how I look at that. So, long story short, long story long, <laughs> donor advised fund is a very smart way to give money to charity. Once it's in the donor advised fund, you must donate it. You can't get it back, right? It's already gone. You have to give it to a bona fide IRS registered five hundred one c three charity. But there are over a million of them in the U.S. alone. So lots of options there. That just sounds like a win-win. Best of both worlds. It is. It is all around. Yep. And I I think it makes me more generous because I just make this one lump sum and I've done it a few times. So one of my blog posts is a a quarter million in donor-advised funds, which is one of my goals. I wanted like 10% of my retirement nest egg to be matched in a donor-advised fund. So we have that much and we give from it every year too. But I kind of treat it like... That's my giving nest egg. So I can spend 4% of my retirement nest egg, you know, and that should last indefinitely. And I can give maybe 4 5 6% of the donor advised fund every year and make that last indefinitely as well. And of course, I can afford to be a little more generous with that because if it runs out of money, that's really not the end of the world, right? But again, I, can, I plan to keep growing it. You know, if I can grow this blog income, 
maybe I'll be donating $100,000 a year for years and years to come. So we'll just see where that goes. That's some awesome financial advice and also very admirable. So hats off to you. And before we wrap up to the final segment, is there anything else that we haven't covered you'd like to share? You know, I, I could talk for days, but no, there's not, there's not one thing that I would really just want to get out there. Only that I hear this from, you know, lots of higher, well, people of all incomes, but you know, I love my job. Why would I want financial independence? It's like, you might love your job right now. You know, you're young, you just started. You may not feel the same way five, 10, 15 years. And so you can reach financial independence and work another 20 years, 30 years. That's awesome. But don't use I love my job as an excuse to not save money. It's all about those options, right? Yep. Options. That's what it's about. So Leaf, Physician on Fire, where is the best place if people want to hit you up, contact you? Maybe they're a high income earner. They don't really know where to go, what to do. Where is the best place to contact you? Well, first read a few blog posts at physicianonfire.com and you can get there a little easier by typing in P-O-F-I-R-E.com, P-O-F-I-R-E.com. And that'll get you there. And I'm easy to reach by email. And I do reply to all personal emails at P-O-F at physicianonfire.com. I'm on Twitter. That's at physicianonfire. And I'd mentioned the, the Facebook groups and I have a Facebook page. So type in physician on fire and, and you'll find a dozen ways to find me online. Awesome. And the one thing we always ask is, what is your number one tangible tip for people trying to reach financial independence? Live on half your take-home pay. That's what I'm going to say. I know it's just a variation of what, what you said earlier, what probably hear all the time, you know, earn more than you save as much as you spend, that sort of thing. But if you live on half your take-home pay, you'll be financially independent in, you know, about 15 years, give or take, depending on market returns. And for a physician, that's pretty doable and still living a pretty good life. All right. So the last question of the podcast is always the wild card question. And we do not prepare these questions beforehand. This is just off the cuff right now. I'm literally racking my brain as I'm talking, thinking of a good question. You're not ready for this. Let's do it. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I know just from following you and your personal story that you're big into curling. Yes. And we're not talking bicep curls at the gym. We're talking the Olympic curling with, I don't even know what you use, some weird fancy broom on the ice. <laughs> I want to hear your craziest curling game or story. We've had some good ones this year. I'm in a men's league. We curl every Tuesday, October through March. It's a lot of fun and crazy story. I do see people fall on the ice, not infrequently. And that's a little dangerous at times. I know one guy, he's a lawyer and he had to have like 20 or $30,000 worth of dental work after uh, hitting his teeth on the ice. <laughs> and I, I was just like, hoping that curling club has a really good insurance policy because when a lawyer needs $20,000 worth of dental work, he, he might be, he might come knocking for some of that, but, uh, but he's a good guy. So I, I don't think he uh, filed any lawsuits. Yeah. It's just a lot of fun. We have a good time. There's a tradition that you sit down with your opponent afterwards and share a beer and the uh, winning team buys for a round for the whole crew. So I like it. I highly encourage it. If you ever get the opportunity. I'll definitely have to try it. I have not tried it yet. All right, Leaf. Well, thank you so much for coming on and just dropping all your wisdom about being a high income earner, about being a physician and just kind of taking a hold and trying out the whole entrepreneurship thing. So just want to thank you for taking time out of your day and spending some time with us. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for the invitation and I look forward to seeing you again soon. 
All right, Cody, another great episode with another cool guest who covered kind of a huge gamut of things. Yeah, I mean, this guy is someone who's firing in all cylinders. Not only is he not satisfied with his multiple six-figure income as a physician, he goes out and pursues a blogging income, and now he's making over six figures in that as well. And what's super admirable, or something that I really respected, was that he's donating half of the profits to charity. He realizes he's already at his fat fine number. He already has everything he needs, and so he's starting to give back. Yeah, I think this is something that is just a big misconception a lot of people have, that this journey to financial independence is a, is a selfish one. But really, when you look at the change power that you have, as you amass this amount of wealth where you're no longer worried about taking care of yourself, and now you can take care of others, and it just starts growing exponentially, you, you begin to be able to make a real impact in the world. Somebody who isn't financially conscious and isn't taking care of their finances will never be able to make because they won't have the money to do so. Yeah, a common thread, Justin, between all of our guests, quite frankly, is their hunger and desire to just learn more. I mean, like I said before, he wasn't just satisfied with, he was probably an expert in his field. He was an expert anesthesiologist. There was nothing else he could learn, but he just, that wasn't enough for him. He wanted to go learn something else. He wanted to go try a new venture. He wanted to, he wanted to light his entrepreneurial flame. And it's those types of people who really stand out. Those are the types of people who make it, they get ahead and they start to succeed in the world. Yeah, and to me, it goes beyond just him wanting to better himself. It's also like this realization that you're never too good for anything. So he's got so much money coming in, but he's still passionate about travel hacking. Like he doesn't need to travel hack, but it's this idea that you just never waste. You always, you know, find value out of your dollar and that just continues. And when you become that type of person, it really doesn't matter. It doesn't seem how much money you have to play with. You're always going to have those core values. Just basically. Whoa. What was that, Justin? Oh, you know, our favorite part, the call to action. Take it away, man. So the call to action this week is a pretty straightforward one. You know, in this episode, we talk a lot about giving back and some good causes. So the call to action is just to simply find one of those causes and give something. It can be money. It can be time. It can be stuff you have laying around. But just find an organization and give something. I love that, Justin. And like you said, it doesn't have to be money. It can be time if you're just at the beginning of your journey. But if you're, I don't know, $5,000 away from hitting that fine number, the fine number isn't everything. You're probably going to feel great if you give back, whether, like I said, whether it's time, whether it's money, whether it's just like helping someone or helping someone figure something out that they might not know. And if you do want to start taking advantage of these tax advantage givings in the most optimal way possible, Leaf gave us some awesome tips, vehicles, and resources. And if you want to reference back to anything we talked about in today's episode, you can visit thefyshow.com slash POF, Physician on Fire. And if you want to give us your thoughts, your reflections, what you thought about this episode, make sure you join our Facebook community at thefyshow.com slash community. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode, please give us that five-star rating and review. It really helps us out and allows us to get on great guests like Leaf. So thanks for listening. See you on next week's episode of The Fi Show.